Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you Everything Compliance. Everything Compliance is the only podcast in compliance featuring the top roundtable of compliance commentators. It includes Mike Volkoff, founder of the Volkoff Law Group, Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quartery Compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors with Affiliated Monitor, and Sarah Haddon, the publisher of Corporate Compliance Insights, CCI. In today's episode, Sarah Haddon takes a look at behavioral ethics and behavioral economics in compliance programs. Jay Rosen tells us about everything you wanted to know about monitors but were afraid to ask. Matt Kelly looks at whistleblower programs, where they are and where they may be going. And Mike Volkoff takes a look at sanctions around OFAC. Jonathan Armstrong is on assignment this week, but he'll be back with us for another episode. I know you will enjoy it. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again for another episode of the only roundtable in compliance. The Everything Compliance gang is back. This week, we have Sarah Haddon, Mike Volkoff, Matt Kelly, and Jay Rosen. And we are going to go geographically from west to east. So, Matt Kelly, what is on your mind? Um, hello. Thank you, Tom. So uh, what's on my mind these days is a lot about whistleblower programs and internal reporting. Um, I was intrigued first because uh, last week, or by the time people hear this, um, it was in mid-May, the House Financial Services Committee moved forward to try to fix what I think is the very difficult decision from the Supreme Court in 2018, Digital Realty Trust. Uh, many of you listening probably know what that meant. Uh, that court case, which the Supreme Court decided in February of 2018, said that if whistleblowers do want the anti-retaliation protections of the Dodd-Frank Act, they must first report their concerns to the SEC. And if you only reported them internally, you would not get those protections. Uh, for compliance officers, that is not good because naturally it drove more whistleblowers to go to the SEC, which is something that has been statistically proven. And the office of the whistleblower at the SEC has said that since the decision came down in February of 2018, it has seen a marked increase in the number of whistleblower tips the office has been receiving. So finally, this past uh, earlier this month, uh, the House Financial Services Committee adopted a bill to uh, reverse that. They made a technical change to Dodd-Frank so that whistleblower protections would apply to employees who do only report internally first and have not yet gone to the SEC. Now, yes, that is good news for compliance officers, but it is only the first step. The full House still needs to adopt this language. Uh, then the Senate has to adopt similar language. Then the entire legislation needs to go to the president to have his signature on it. I don't know when any of that might happen. However, the good signs are that this was a bipartisan vote. And there is a lot of bipartisan support of whistleblower protections and rights in Congress, both in the House and in the Senate. A lot of it is more about government whistleblowers so that they can route out claims of fraud and abuse against uh, Uncle Sam. But still, like it permeates legislatures, lawmakers and legislators generally that they are in favor of more whistleblower protection. So I wouldn't be surprised if this bill eventually becomes law. I just don't know exactly when. But it's out there. It's moving forward. Isn't that nice? Second 
I've got three uh, bits of news about whistleblowers. So the second thing that happened recently came from the Commodities and Futures Trading Commission. So they recently gave out a $1.5 million whistleblower award that has been enhanced because the person who won the award first did try to report his or her concerns to the company internally. That's pretty much all we know. So what does try to report internally? What does that actually mean? The CFTC did not say. Why did it fail? We don't know. What company was this? What was the misconduct? We don't know. Um, how much was it enhanced by? We don't know. This is what I dislike about whistleblower awards and the orders. They're redacted more than the Mueller report. Um, but we, the CFTC did say that because this person had reported internally, that deserved an award at the high end of that 10 to 30 percent uh, slice of the action that a whistleblower might get. So I do like that message that the CFTC is trying to hand out that uh, is encouraging whistleblowers. You can get more money from us if you first try to report internally. Um, I don't know if anybody has seen the SEC hand out enhanced awards like that. I can't recall any, but it's a good message to send. On the other hand, and this is my third whistleblower issue, um, some of you out in compliance world may be intrigued to hear that the CFTC this week was at a cryptocurrency trade conference, and it was there to promote its whistleblower program. Like, they had a booth. They had free swag they were giving out. They were giving whistles with the CFTC logo on them. And they had all this drapery all over their booth talking about how you, too, might be able to win 10 to 30 percent of whatever award we could settle if you bring us your concerns. Um, I can't say I like that idea. That is contradictory messaging from the CFTC. I Actually, while I was in a compliance conference in Chicago this week, this news came to me about the CFTC booth, and I floated that to a couple of compliance officer attendees at my conference who made all sorts of sour faces that they very clearly did not like this idea. People had told me they thought it might be tacky or tone deaf or whatever. I agree with that. I do not know if maybe the CFTC was telling people at its booth but first, please do try to report internally. Or maybe they had some brochure where that was in the fine print. But if you look at pictures of the booth that the CFTC had set up, um, very clearly the message they were sending to passerby, who would be your employees, all of our compliance executive listeners, the message they were sending was, hey, guys, bring your concerns right to us. Maybe you're going to win 10 to 30 percent. Wouldn't that be awesome? That is not the message that the CFTC should send. And it's, it's not the one they were sending with the enhanced award they gave out the week before they went on this trade show with the booth. So I don't know really what's going on there. And that probably brings me to my last point. And this is more like a question for all of our listeners and for the class here today is I'm curious how compliance officers would try to deal with their legal functions if the digital reality trust decision does get fixed by Congress, which I believe it should. Um, so you can extend more whistleblower retaliation protections. It seems to me that this is going to be one of those scenarios that is good for compliance officers because whistleblowers will feel more comfortable speaking to you internally. 
but it's going to be bad for legal departments next door because if they have more ability to claim whistleblower protections, the chance of your whistleblower retaliation liability and lawsuits around that point, that goes up. And I get it that general counsels might not like that, but compliance officers would like it. And we could see some butting of heads. And I don't know how that would all shake out. But let's remember, we've already seen the opposite happen when the Digital Reality Trust decision did come down. We saw several examples of legal departments immediately seizing on that to knock down the size of some whistleblower judgments because these people had not reported to the SEC first. Um, and that would clearly send a message to what would be whistleblowers. If you want your chance of maximum payout, whatever you do, don't go to compliance first. Go to the SEC, get your protections. Doesn't do the compliance officer any good. I appreciate why the Supreme Court decided the way it did with digital reality. This is one of those cases that was legally correct, but realistically wrong and just dumb because it doesn't do us any favors. Um, so I'm very curious to see how this Digital reality trust issue may be fixed by Congress, and if it is, what does that mean for the nice relations between compliance and legal departments with their whistleblower hotlines? And I, I don't know what the answer will be or if anybody has any thoughts, but that's what's been on my mind this week. So my question for the class, either everybody who is with us on this podcast or anybody who's just listening to it later on, is how will compliance officers deal with their friends in the legal function uh, if this move to fix the digital reality trust decision, if this moves forward and becomes uh, legitimate and real. Uh, because to my thinking, if we increase the ease of whistleblowers claiming retaliation protections, that's good for compliance officers, because whistleblowers might feel more comfortable speaking internally to you first rather than going directly to the SEC. But at the same time, that is probably going to be unwelcome by our friends in the legal department, because if it is easier to claim whistleblower retaliation, uh, they might have to defend against more retaliation claims. Um, I don't know how this will all shake out. Uh, if the digital reality trust issue does get fixed. Uh, but we have, I mean, think it's, it's worth to note, we have seen the opposite effect already proven true, by which I mean when the digital reality trust decision did come down from the Supreme Court, uh, immediately we saw legal departments start to try to knock down some whistleblower judgments um, because some of those judgments were based on a whistleblower who had not gone directly to the SEC. So therefore, part of your claim must be invalid. And sometimes courts upheld that and whistleblower damages in lawsuits were diminished and cut, um, which I think sends a terrible message to whistleblowers because basically it says if you want maximum protection, if you want maximum chance to win an award, whatever you do, do not go to the compliance department go directly to the SEC, talk to them first. Nothing good comes from that, not for the legal department, not for the compliance department, but nonetheless, um, that's been the incentive that has been created by the Digital Reality Trust decision. So if we reverse that, which I think we should, um, how is that going to complicate relations between compliance and legal? 
I don't know what the answer is. I'd love people to share any thoughts that they might have. You can email me or anytime. But, Tom, that's what's rolling around in my head as I look at all of these whistleblower issues happening these days. Well, Matt, let me just pick up on your last point and take it a step further. Would there be the uh, risk of an internal dissonance within a corporation, even to the extent of supporting this legislation or opposing it between the legal department and the compliance department? And if a company comes out against this as, as they make the determination that's their final position as in their best interest. Um, what does that say about the compliance program within the company? And could that be used against them by the Department of Justice? I, you know, that's an excellent question. And I realize that at this moment in time, it is a somewhat academic consideration, but I don't think it's going to stay an academic consideration for very long. Um, you know, Congress wants to fix this, and even the Supreme Court justices themselves. People forget this, but in November 2017, when there were oral arguments about the Digital Reality Trust case, the justices essentially said, we understand the tension that we would be introducing if we rule this way, and that they did turn out to rule that way, but that basically we are, this ruling will encourage people to go to the SEC and not work with their own employers to try and resolve issues. The justices didn't like this, but the law was pretty clear. And now Congress, I think, is aware that this is a dumb outcome, even if it is legally and technically correct. So Congress, I think, eventually is going to fix this. And then companies have to start thinking, well, you know, do we want to take a position on this? I don't know how many actually would. But even if they don't take formal positions with, I don't know, endorsements of legislative proposals or anything like that, even just internally, this is one of those issues that is going to put compliance and legal on opposite sides. And I don't think anybody likes that, even though I always say I don't think compliance should answer into legal. I don't think that they should be eyeing each other with distrust either. Um, but this could wind up becoming a, a thing. And, uh, you know, you could have the interests of legal and compliance not in alignment over this issue. And I don't think that uh, that's good for anybody. Sarah Haddon, what is on your mind? Well, I am talking about behavioral ethics today, and I'm going to do this by triangulating my way to my point by way of three cool things that crossed my desk just this past week. Thing one was a survey of chief compliance officers. KPMG was the company asking the questions. And what they found in talking to chief compliance officers at large companies across multiple industries is that 66% of those surveyed agreed that ethics is an area, they say, that needs to be enhanced. And the report went on to say that respondents indicated that they were looking up the chain of command looking to the board and senior management to drive the ethics training process. And they also said that they hope to put some muscle behind the effort to improve ethics by integrating ethics training with technology and with automated processes relating to compliance investigations and monitoring. And if you dig a little deeper in the report, there's a little infographic in there that contrasts where they say they think they are today with their ethics training versus where they hope to be. And it looks like this. Today, their compliance and training, they say, is tailored to employee roles and responsibilities and tends to focus on company values and culture. But tomorrow or sooner, they're banking on training that's more dynamic, 
more based on real-time trigger events that would spark the opportunity for training that might further reinforce ethics and compliance concepts. And I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing there from the report. So if I understand that correctly, they're looking for training that isn't based so much on what your job title is or what the company's stated culture is, but training that has more of a moment-by-moment, real-time, situational human element. So perhaps less of a do-this-not-that sensibility and more of a thoughtful or even compassionate exploration of why we do what we do when we're faced with ethical dilemmas. Maybe more of a, a nuanced style of training that unpacks the way our brains are wired and examines why we as human beings so often do the wrong thing. And the results here suggested to me that the emerging science of behavioral ethics might be starting to get a little more traction in the realm of compliance and ethics programs. That's what the survey findings suggested to me, but it could be confirmation bias because by the time I was reviewing the KPMG report, I was fresh off of editing a book by Jeff Kaplan that delves more deeply into behavioral ethics. That is absolutely in in Jeff's wheelhouse. And the various cognitive biases that tend to derail our thinking and our actions are something that he talks about a lot on his blog and and certainly in this ebook. Um, and just just briefly, I'm sure our, our listeners know and you guys know, when we refer to behavioral economics, that's a social science that teaches us that we are not as rational as we think we are. And in the same way, with behavioral ethics, that teaches us that we're not as ethical as we think we are. And here's, a, here's an example. We define different rules to ourselves depending on the role that we're playing. And I think this is interesting because the KPMG study said that the state of most current ethics training today is based on what your, your job title or your role happens to be. And an example of that kind of bias in action, I found uh, just yesterday, as a matter of fact, I was watching an interesting video that featured students from the University of Texas. And they were talking about ethical decision-making on the campus. And one student said that he was really shocked when he got to college to learn how common it is for students to take study drugs, like ADD medicine that's not prescribed for them, Ritalin and that sort of thing, to help them cram for tests and pull all-nighters to get their projects done. So this student said, if he were a bad student and took the drug to help him be a good student, that he would view that as cheating and unethical. But because he is a very good student, he said, and expected to do well always, and he felt that his parents and his teachers and his peers expected him to be a high achiever, he felt that taking the study drugs that he bought on the black market was actually appropriate because it allowed him to fulfill his role. So it's different role, different rule. And it's easy, I think, to take that example and apply it to the kinds of unethical things that people do in the context of performing well at work to meet a sales goal or something like that, you know. So maybe this survey suggests that unpacking cognitive bias and making us aware of how our brains skew information as it comes in and how that impacts our behavior could be really helpful. And Jeff, of course, makes that point in this book, and he makes it elsewhere on his blog. And I'll, you know what, I'll, I'll do links to the report and to Jeff's book in the show notes, Tom, so that our listeners can get a crack 
at both of those, um, both of those free resources. But back to the book, in one of the chapters, Jeff talks about various behavioral experiments that relate to ethics. Things like we tend to behave unethically when we do not know or cannot see the victims of our actions. So that's going to explain why you're not going to dump a pot of coffee on your coworker's head, but you might not lose any sleep over misrepresenting the benefits of your company's products to an online customer because you're never going to meet them. You probably won't ever even talk to them on the phone. And another example would be the fact that people are more likely to behave unethically when their resources are depleted. So in that case, a compliance officer would want to look at areas in the company where employees are overworked or overburdened or maybe where they're subject to some really extraordinary pressures to perform And furthermore, I thought this was interesting. Jeff references something that's counterintuitive, and that is that some studies show that when you make people aware of their ethical failings, it can actually increase the likelihood that they will subsequently try harder and do better. And so that, to me, goes back to the notion that to make ethics training more effective, maybe it needs to focus more on our humanness on our fallibility and why we are the way we are. Or maybe actually the word I'm looking for here would be humility. Maybe having having those things explained to us is humbling, and therein lies the benefit. We don't talk much, I don't think, about humility as it relates to good business. That's one of those kind of squishy, soft qualities that doesn't really seem to have a place in the competitive business arena. But then again, maybe it does, which brings me to the third cool thing that crossed my desk, which was a great article on CCI day before yesterday. And this was from Donna Bohm. In 2014, Donna writes, she decided to put the greatly overused phrase tone at the top on her banned list. She banned tone at the top. And she says that she did that because it's misuse by so many commentators and boards and self-appointed compliance experts had gotten so out of hand, the misuse had become institutionalized to the point that CEOs and boards and management had begun to think of tone at the top, meaning tone from my mouth. In other words, leadership is whatever I say or whatever I put on a piece of paper. And Donna notes, of course, that that kind of thinking sets the leadership bar pretty low. And so she makes a call for ethical leadership in the form of walking the walk, not just talking the talk. And who does she cite as an example of this? Pope Francis. Donna tells us that he is known as the Pope. I don't know much about the Pope, to be honest. I know you can follow him on Twitter, though, which might be a nice counterbalance to some of the other leaders who show up from time to time. And who could benefit from a dose of humility. But anyway, I, I won't chase that rabbit today, but, but here's my takeaway. Humility, who knew, as a path to ethical behavior, ethics training that's driven by leadership and management and training that's effective because rather than just telling us to do the right thing, it helps us gain a deeper understanding of why we so often do the wrong thing. So that was my week. Jay Rosen. What have you been thinking about and writing about and talking about? So uh, thanks, Tom. Uh, for full disclosure, I wanted to let everyone know that I am a weekly columnist on Corporate Compliance Insights, which happens to be Sarah's awesome blog about all things ethics and compliance. 
And uh, I've started a series with a little nudge from Sarah called Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Monitors But Were Afraid to Ask. And uh, for the past three weeks, we've kind of uh, taken a deep dive into what is a corporate monitorship and um, other issues that we're going to address in the series over the next few months is what it's like to work with a monitor, how does a monitor work within suspension and debarment, how does the monitor work within healthcare? And we're going to follow these. Um, they're really bite-sized, digestible little things, 500 to 750 words. So um, we will link to it in the show notes. And the first thing I want to talk about is a few of the questions that we will address going forward, such as, should a corporate monitor be feared if your company is in the middle of an FCPA matter? How can a corporate monitor be leveraged to ensure that your business is operating in an ethically compliant manner? How can they be leveraged to ensure that your business is operating in an ethically compliant manner? Can a monitor be used in a manner other than post-settlement? And finally, there's lots of talk about alleged exorbitant costs of a monitorship that's borne by a company. Is this an urban myth or is it based on facts? So, as many of you know, a corporate monitor is an individual or a team of individuals that are independent of an entity and that this entity brings them in to perform corporate oversight. Monitors generally report to an oversight agency, such as the Department of Justice or the Securities and Exchange Commission, or another regulator with a company or an individual. The costs that we talked about just now are borne by the company being overseen. It's a unique model that has been created with an unrelated independent private person or entity who is still being overseen by a government uh, agency. And there are specific terms for a third party that are spelled out in the resolution documents. Next, we take a look at what is a post-resolution monitorship. And a post-resolution monitorship is essentially a situation where a government agency and a private organization it could be a corporation, it could be a nonprofit, as a requirement of settling a dispute or a matter between those two entities, the regulator agrees that they're going to use a monitor to ensure that specific conditions are met. Now, many of you who follow this know of a monitor from an FCPA context, and depending on uh, the agreement that is made between the uh, negligent company and the government, the uh, monitor may be uh, assigned as part of a remedial measure. But there's other issues too. One of the things that we've worked on recently is using compliance with uh, consent decrees. And monitorships have been employed in antitrust scenarios to ensure compliance uh, with either Federal Trade Commission or Federal Communication Commission's approved mergers. And um, recently affiliated monitor worked on such a matter with DirecTV and ATT. In that case, the monitor was charged with reviewing and assessing compliance with certain merger conditions in mind. There was no enforcement action, no wrongdoing, but a mutual recognition by all parties involved for the need of a truly independent third-party assessment for compliance and acquisition conditions. Uh, so far, uh, we have only scratched the surface of the myriad of applications and uses of an independent, credible third party to facilitate 
facilitate the resolution of disputes. There are also numerous ways where a third party is engaged to help a client resolve issues with the regulator. And as we've seen at Affiliated Monitors over the past 15 years, the number of ways is almost infinite and at the very least limited to your imagination. The bottom line is that there's certainly no, no finite number of categories for the post-resolution monitorship. They can be used in a wide variety of ways to help facilitate not only resolution of enforcement actions, but to satisfy compliance with a wide variety of cares, concerns, and issues. And the last thing we, talked to, we touched upon in this week's thing was what is the power of a pre-settlement monitorship? And most generally, a pre-settlement monitorship occurs when an organization engages an independent body to conduct any kind of a third-person, third-party review. Using this type of a proactive monitorship can help an organization to assess not only where they might be at this point in time, but also work to create a roadmap to improve and strengthen the culture going forward. In the uh, blog, I further talk about internal cultural assessments and how you can use this as a preemptive strike to prevent suspension or debarment. So uh, we're up to parts one, two, and three, and in the coming months, we'll be addressing other issues. And if you do have questions, please feel free to write in, and I'll definitely address them in my Mr. Monitor's column. Great. Mike Volkoff, uh, sanctions, one of the favorite terms of the current administration sometimes changing by the hour. How do you begin to think through advising a client on sanctions uh, in May 2019? Well, uh, we, had a, we had a significant um, development on May 2nd, uh, 2019. Uh, OFAC, the Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Asset Control, issued its uh, promised guidance for sanctions compliance programs. And this is, and I hate to use the phrase, you know, a game changer. This is what I would, Donna Bohm always says, uh, uses a great term, which is board worthy. This is important for companies to get to their board. Uh, and compliance officers have to do this because the, the level of expectations here for sanctions compliance uh, is pretty significant. And also there have been statements made by uh, enforcement officials uh, that they want to sort of broaden the enforcement uh, strategy to go against uh, non-financial companies and more manufacturing companies and more people who are sort of outside the traditional realm of sanctions enforcement. The big cases usually involve financial institutions and now uh, we're going to see some changes uh, with regard to that. So I think this is a, it's a big development. Um, and also what I think is interesting at the same time is we also have CFTC issuing compliance guidance. And you can see how the Justice Department's influence over these agencies um, in terms of what are the requisite elements, what are the expectations uh, in some of the program elements, and the DOJ's compliance guidance, which we've already you know had an episode about, is clearly having an influence throughout other regulatory agencies, and that is somewhat related to personnel who have had experience at DOJ, but also just the ideas that DOJ is pushing. So I think 
Uh, OFAC's framework uh, is an important 12-page document. And in some respects, uh, some of the expectations, and I'm only going to highlight a, a few issues uh, for people to focus on, but it definitely is worthwhile for everybody to take a, a moment to look at it. For example, uh, they broke the guidance into five sort of categories of management commitment, risk assessment, internal controls, testing and audit, and training. And I hate to sort of get into the minutia, but there's one really important issue that has to be flagged, which is in the level of robust risk assessment, there's sort of a new requirement uh, when conducting a risk assessment that companies are now going to be required to conduct a risk assessment on their entire supply chain with regard to sanctions compliance. Now, at first glance, everybody says, so big deal. Okay, you know, people that you deal with are part of your supply chain. But in fact, what the enforcement actions have shown, and there's a case called ELF, is that even in your supply chain, if you are unaware of the fact that there is a sanctions violation occurring by somebody in your supply chain, you can be held responsible for it. That happened in a case where a Chinese supplier was getting sourcing material from North Korea, and the American company was held responsible for that, even though they had no knowledge of it. So, that, so risk assessments now have to include your supply chain, and that raises a whole host of issues. People have already gone through the conflict minerals review of their supply chain, and now we have sort of a new requirement. The second issue that I think is really important is this is the first time we've seen prescriptive guidance with regard to technology solutions, such as software providers, vendors who provide screening services. Now we have a situation where Companies are going to have to do more documentation uh, and more uh, sort of uh, take greater care with regard to their screening technologies. And they're going to have to, let's say they hire, you hire a particular vendor, you have to document why you picked that vendor, who else you considered, and the reasons why you went with that vendor. Second, you're going to have to show how and document how you calibrated your solution, meaning what kind of uh, triggers or where did you set your red flag notices with regard to SDNs or prohibited countries. And you're uh, going to have to routinely test, at least annually, your solution to make sure it's effective. This is the first time that we've seen prescriptive guidance with regard to an actual technology solution. And the reason is that the OFAC got tired of people coming in and saying, well, we screened it, but it didn't come up, or we didn't look at this issue because it, we, it wasn't flagged through our filter system. And uh, that is no longer going to be an excuse that can be used. And if anything, uh, OFAC has started to take, uh, put more burdens in regard to this area. So those are the big issues. Um, there obviously are more important uh, issues with, you know, again, reiterating, uh, you know, management commitment, resources, uh, allocation of people with adequate um, uh, expertise in this area. 
And uh, there's one part of the document which I thought was really very helpful is they kind of uh, they went through 10 examples of common violations that they have seen. And it's a good document to review because it's a good sort of barometer which, uh, against which you can check your own company to, uh, with regard to this. But compliance is growing. And, uh, and I think this document sort of advances the ball again. Uh, and uh, we're seeing, you know, m new trends and new requirements and more robust and refine thinking, I think, from the government as they learn more and more about uh, compliance programs. But this is a definite uh, board-worthy document. So, Matt Kelly, did you have a question for Mike? Well, I, I suppose I did. Mike, I have sort of a comment question for you just to respond. But um, I was reading the OFAC guidance the other day, and I, I would even take the, the stake out the position that this OFAC guidance is probably more interesting, more substantive than the DOJ evaluation guidelines, which I, I like. And like you said, we had a whole separate uh, everything compliance podcast on them. But fundamentally, those DOJ evaluation guidelines were largely what the DOJ had already put forth in 2017. I mean, they it's a update on steroids, but all the questions that were there before were questions that are still here. Compared to the OFAC guidance, where I, I looked it up, there are no questions in the OFAC guidance. It doesn't give you any hypotheticals of what we might ask. This is much more like, this is what we are expecting you to do. And especially your point about how to configure technology vendors, because they have already enforced against companies. And I think it was one in suburban Washington, D.C., where the, you know, the, the company had screwed up how to check a name of a vendor in Russian or something like that. And, you know, they, they wound up getting, getting dinged by OFAC for this. And this is like, this is big, bulky, substantive stuff. I might put forth that if you have an effective compliance program, you should be able to do everything that OFAC says. Um, but, you know, when I look at the two, the guidelines and OFAC, you know, which one has the bigger wow factor, like the OFAC guidance to my thinking. And I just, I don't know if you think I'm right or wrong or whatever, but I'd be curious well, I, what you think. I Matt, I, um, I definitely think you're right with regard to that. Although in defense of the DOJ evaluation, uh, just one quick point. I think mm -hmm. there are two things that are important about the DOJ new guidance. One is they turned questions into affirmative statements, which I think is more important in term, in the general description. So there was some discussion in that sense. Um, I also think it was significant that they used the word now, you know, maybe I'm just a micro person here, but they used the word ethics and really put in new questions with regard to culture, uh, showing that they're finally, you know, getting the point about the value of an ethical culture as opposed to calling it the culture of compliance. But by and large, I think you're right that there was a lot of revision. And, it, and frankly, they missed the ball with regard to where they were on mergers and acquisitions. And they should have updated stuff that they, they've already moved past in a policy way. And it just, uh, to me, there's, there's more work on the DOJ 
uh, program. Here, what OFAC did, and it reflects uh, Seagal Manlikur, he used to be at DOJ, and she's the head, sort of the deputy in charge of OFAC, and she clearly brought over her DOJ experience and then ramped it up. And I think because OFAC politically right now has a lot of political capital within the administration for these sanctions, uh, not so much the Russian sanctions for, uh, for certain reasons, but certainly against Iran and Venezuela. And I think that because that is viewed as so integral to the foreign policy right now, these I think they were allowed to sort of push the envelope. And I think they took advantage of it. And uh, I also think that we're, I think we're looking at something that reminds me about like where people were on third parties about, and, and corruption risks about 10, 15 years ago. That's where people are with regard to sanctions. Uh, and now we have this prescriptive document that I think really challenges companies to make the push here. Um, and I think this is going to be sort of the new hot area in the sense of they're way behind the curve here. And this and you're right, this this lays out. There's not one question. It's like you better be doing this. Um, so I, I think your point is very well taken. So. so now on to some rants. So why don't we keep the same geographic order? Uh, Matt Kelly, do you have a rant and or shout out for us? I have a shout out this month. I try to alternate every other month. So I'm up for a, a shout out. I would like to shout out uh, just generally to the many smaller firms and groups out there that are trying to have compliance events. Uh, as much as I love a big national conference, which I do, uh, but I have been to two within the last couple of weeks that really were excellent. So first, uh, in Connecticut, the local chapter of the Institute of Internal Auditors has paired up with the Connecticut U.S. Attorney's Office to host an annual day-long conference about cybersecurity risk and how to look for it and then how to look for, how to work with law enforcement if the worst happens to your company. And it's three years running. It happens every May. It just happened on uh, May 9th this year. Uh, an excellent local conference attracted about 125 people. Um, any other IIA chapters or U.S. attorneys who might be listening in any other state, do this, pair up. It is a wonderful event, and I would give a big shout out to specifically Neil Fraser, who is the head of internal audit at Frontier Communications, and Vanessa Richards, who is an assistant U.S. attorney in Connecticut. They have basically been working with uh, their local community in Connecticut for three years running now to put on an excellent event. Um, and every other U.S. attorney should be cloning this in every jurisdiction we have. Uh, and then second, uh, in Chicago on May 14th, there was a day-long compliance conference uh, hosted by the law firm Quarles & Brady, which is a fairly significant uh, mid-sized firm in the Midwest. And uh, lots of compliance officers from those um, you know, non-giant companies in the East Coast or the West Coast, but plenty of big ones from Indiana, from Wisconsin, from Illinois. Uh, there were about 75 people there. And another you know, day long, that's it, but great opportunities to have some practical advice and meet some good connections. So it's these little conferences that really keep the glue of the community together. And I just wanted to call out those two. 
And if anyone else has any other little events or regional events that you are posting sometime soon, let me know because I'm always up for giving them some publicity. But it was just excellent stuff these this last couple of weeks. And that's my shout out for this month. Sarah Haddon. Yeah, I have a, a shout out too. a shout out to the University of Texas, partly because I'm headed down there shortly to watch my child graduate from college. But um, shout out to University of Texas for that fabulous online video series specifically devoted to behavioral ethics. Well produced, informative. You can find it easily. Just Google ethics unwrapped and I'll also put it in the show notes. And the video series I thought did an outstanding job of exploring cognitive biases, which I just think are so interesting, so entertaining to read about and super handy to toss into a conversation, especially when you want to point out when someone is wrong about something. But I I learned a new one this week. I've decided this is my new favorite. It's the Ikea effect. Has anybody heard of that? The Ikea effect? I know what it is. No, but wait, wait, Sarah. Wait, wait, wait. If I have to put put something together, I'm not going to do it. Okay. Well, okay. Stay with me because the Ikea effect is the tendency for people to place a disproportionately high value on objects that they partially assembled themselves, such as furniture from Ikea, regardless of the quality of the end result. There's a lot of applications, I think, for the Ikea effect. And of course, I want to tie it back into humble leadership because I think that if you recognize that a training program or a policy that you yourself wrote or designed, if you recognize it's not working and it needs to be retooled, that takes a certain amount of humility. And maybe the Ikea effect is why that doesn't happen more often. Just a thought. Plus, there's this bookcase here. So... I'm proud of it. Uh, Jay Rosen. Uh, I offer this up as a sign of the times. Uh, Earlier this week, some government officials were waiting for the president to arrive at the 38th annual National Peace Officers Memorial Service. And as those were seated on the platform waited for the president, Attorney General Barr approached Speaker Nancy Pelosi, shook her hand and said loudly so everyone can hear, Madam Speaker, did you bring your handcuffs? A bystander told the press. The Speaker, not missing a beat, smiled and indicated to the Attorney General that the House Sergeant at Arms was present at the ceremony should an arrest be necessary. The AG chuckled and walked away. Ouch. Nice. Mike Volkov. Well, following up a little bit on uh, on Matt's point, uh, I, uh, Tom, you and I happened to be at the ECI conference in Dallas, and I thought uh, that was the first time I went to an ECI uh, conference, and I was uh, incredibly impressed because the quality of the presentations, not my own or yours, Tom, but uh, the quality of the presentations, but also the fact that it tends to draw a smaller group of what I would consider more senior folks in the compliance field. So uh, I intend to try to uh, participate more in those. I just thought it was uh, an incredibly valuable experience. And not uh, and, and maybe Matt is on to something in terms of these the smaller groups. Uh, I know you run, uh, Tom you, uh, Gerber, uh, in Houston, which I think is a terrific small group. And I know Chicago actually has a small uh, uh, group run, run with, a, I think it's Ted Banks uh, at a law firm there, but it's a terrific group of, that I've met with as well. It's like 20, 30 people who get together on a regular basis. So uh, 
Um, I think, Matt, there's something about bringing smaller groups together, uh, probably with people who are more at the same level or close in level and sort of uh, learning from each other. So um, I found that at ECI to be terrific. Well, gang, this has been a great podcast and I look forward to seeing what we come up with next time. Thanks to everyone. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. I hope you will join us again in a couple of weeks when we get another podcast recording up from the East, the Everything Compliance gang. I also hope that you will check out the entire oeuvre of the Compliance Podcast Network on the thecompliancepodcastnetwork.com. Finally, I'm extraordinarily pleased to announce that I'm part of C-Suite Radio. I'll link to that in the show notes and check out the full scope of all of the podcasts that are available on the C-Suite Network. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.